Welcome to the Song of Songs. This is a podcast based on the book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon. It's also called the Song of Songs. It's it's also called the Canticle, so that's a term that's really used by people who have been dead for several hundred years. So you won't see that as much today, but if you do a lot of reading, especially of people who have been, well, dead for a couple hundred years, you'll probably run into the term Canticles at some point. It's talking about this book. So this is a book that is surrounded by an air of controversy, and that for probably good reason. I probably would not want to read this book of the Bible to my children as a bedtime story. That's just something that I'll throw out there. Though this is something that I want to teach my children when they get to an age appropriate to where I can teach them some of these things. Because this book of the Bible has a lot to offer us that we're frankly not getting. Um, This book of the Bible is uh, very marginalized. It's ignored, neglected by many. Some people just outright oppose it. Some people just say, well, I think it was a mistake that it was in the scriptures. It shouldn't be in the scriptures. I don't like it being there. But uh, those folks' opinion don't really matter because it is in the scriptures, okay? And you can't do anything to change that, all right? Don't be like Jehoiakim, who was a king in uh, in Israel, or rather in Judah, uh, who took a pen knife, took a knife to the word of God and cut out the parts that he didn't like. We can't do that, okay? So let's just accept the fact that Song of Solomon is in the Bible. We should probably pay attention to it. Before we dive into all of that, let me give you a little introduction of who I am, and I promise I'm going to be brief about this because I've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, My name is John. I am a Christian, first and foremost. Uh, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Um, I repented of my sins, and the Lord drew me to himself, and... uh, I was seven when I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, put my faith in him. Uh, I was 12 when the Lord dealt with my heart about Christian ministry, about preaching the gospel. And I'm 32 now, so that means for about 20 years, I've dedicated my life to preaching and teaching the word of God. I don't know very much. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. I don't. There are some people who have forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever know. I'm a student of the Bible, though. I try to be a good student of the Bible. I'm trying to learn, and I'm trying to grow in these things, and I'm trying to help other people learn and grow as I learn and grow. And so, the last year or so, um, I've been convicted about the Song of Solomon. I was just doing a normal read-through-the-Bible kind of thing, and I ran across a couple of passages that really spoke to me. Uh, and uh, I I didn't fully understand the book, but I knew there was more to this than what what people were, were telling me. And so I took the time to study through it. I got a commentary or two, and I don't usually use commentaries, but this is one of those kinds of books where, yeah, you need a little bit of help to, to, to really understand it. And so I, I consulted some folks and, and looked at different interpretations and different viewpoints on it, and I really wanted to do the very best that I could to really understanding this book of the Bible. And so it's in that mentality that I come to you with this podcast because I believe that this is a book that uh, a true child of God will benefit very much from studying this book. Uh, There are still going to be many people who will probably oppose it and who will probably criticize it and who will disagree with me, and that's okay. If you disagree with me, that's okay. But you better make sure you agree with God because he's the one that really matters. So in this attitude, I kind of want to just do an overview or really an an introduction to the book. Uh, I want to give a a reason why uh, this podcast, I believe, is important, why we're studying the book of the Song of Solomon. Uh, I want to give you different interpretations of the book, and in that I will tell you why I believe the way that I believe, and then I will also tell you why I don't believe the way other people believe. 
And then I'm also going to go through uh, who the main characters are. There are many supporting characters in this book, but who the main characters are and who they represent. And that'll give us a good foundation and basis for us to be able to start really diving into it in the next episode. So first, I want to share why study the Song of Solomon. Well, the first reason why study the Song of Solomon is because it's in the pages of Scripture. Uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for reproof. That is a word that means to expose or to bring to light or to reveal something. So it's good for teaching, good for doctrine, good for reproof, good to reveal things, for correction. And correction means exactly that. It's good to uh, to right our wrongs. It's good to correct our bad thinking. It's good to give us a right way of thinking when we've had a wrong way of thinking. And then it says for instruction in righteousness, it's good to lead us in the way that we should go. And that includes the Song of Solomon because the Song of Solomon is part of the Hebrew scriptures. As a result of that, the Bible tells us that it's good for all of these different things. So we would be robbing ourselves if we do not pay attention to this book which God has prescribed for us to play a part in the remedy for our bad thinking and for our sin and for our rebellion. Another reason why I think we ought to study the Song of Solomon, I've already briefly mentioned it, it, it is part of the Hebrew Bible. It plays a vital part of Hebrew tradition. Um, it's still something that the Hebrew people on the Sabbath of the Passover, they read the Song of Solomon. On the Sabbath of the Passover every year, they read the book of the Song of Solomon. For that reason, we ought to at least pay more attention to it than we already are. Um, another reason why uh, I think we should study the Song of Solomon is because it's been fiercely attacked and criticized and marginalized by many different opponents through the years. Anything that is in Scripture that is violently attacked is is worth our while. It's worth us paying attention to. And so knowing that that there are those who oppose this book should drive us to it and say, Lord, why would why would people want to keep this from me? Whenever the world really tries to pull you away from something, I, I try to keep an open mind and open heart about it and say, Lord, is there something there that I need to be paying attention to? Because there's a lot of people criticizing this. Another reason why we should pay attention to this book is because it's been passionately defended. It's not only been fiercely attacked, but it's been passionately defended by God's servants through the years. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon had to say about this. He says, This book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and no man shall ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat from it until first he has been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love which has delivered him from death. The Song of Solomon is only to be comprehended by the men whose standing is within the veil. The outer court worshippers and even those who only enter the court of the priests think the book a very strange one. But those who come very near to Christ can often see in this Song of Solomon the only expression which their love to their Lord desires. And by the way, Charles Spurgeon preached from this book of the Bible over 80 times. He was no stranger to preaching from this book of the Bible. Of course, if you're unfamiliar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you need to go and you need, after this podcast is over, obviously, I want you to finish this. But when this is over, you need to go familiarize yourself with him because he was a Bible teacher in the late 19th century. 
there's another thing that we ought to consider. Not only did Charles, this isn't like a new thing, you know, just in the last few hundred years did people start to look at this. This isn't from an article that I ran across from preachingtoday.com. I don't know anything about those folks. I don't know anything about what they stand for. I just was doing some research and whatnot and ran across this article, and I want to, to quote them from, uh, from this particular article. It says, So concerned were the church fathers about the song being misinterpreted that over a hundred commentaries were written on the song by 1200 A.D. Origen, the Alexandrian church father, is the most notable commentator, as he authored ten alone. Additionally, this stance has been common in Christian preaching. For example, Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons on this song, but he never made it out of chapter number two. I'll put a little note here and say, again, I'm don't want to alienate people on the first episode, but I try to be careful whenever I see things about church fathers and early church fathers because I I don't really trust the tradition of the Catholic Church. Uh, I believe there's always been Bible-believing preachers and Bible-believing churches all throughout the ages. Um, but sometimes, you know, when we see something by early church father, don't equate that with scripture. All right. Don't put that on the same level as these people are writing the very words of God. They're not. Okay. They're men who had opinions and ideas and they express those opinions and ideas. The reason why I include this quote is to tell you that people from early, early on, they, they respected this book and they wanted people to rightly understand the book. Now, an interesting thing about that note about Bernard of Clairvaux, that he preached 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon, but he never made it out of chapter number two. One of my favorite hymns was actually written by him. And when I read this quote, I said in my heart, and I said out loud, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far uh, thy face to see and in thy presence rest. And that song, Jesus, the very thought of thee, I read that and, and I've sung that. And, and I say, you know, that, that has to be written by somebody who knows the Song of Solomon. And sure enough, that song was written by someone who is very familiar with the Song of Solomon. It has been defended passionately through the ages. It's been attacked and fiercely criticized through the ages. It plays a vital part of, of Hebrew tradition even to this day. And it's in the Bible, and so we should pay attention to it. So, moving on, there are different ways that different people have interpreted the book over the years. Now, historically, this book has been seen as an expression of God's love for his people. Uh, so, the Hebrew people view it as God's love for the nation of Israel in, in general. Uh, and the Christian viewpoint is that it shows Christ's love for the church and for the individual Christian as well. And this is the viewpoint that I take. This is the viewpoint that I have been led into. I've studied out the other viewpoints, and I've read the book, and I've studied the book, and I've devoted a lot of time to the book, and this is just where I've landed. I'm not necessarily trying to force your arm and tell you this is where you need to land, but this is where I landed on this. Uh, some other people interpret the book just as a collection of love poems uh, from a man and a woman. And to those folks, I, I might say, you know, well... If that is true, even if that were true, if it's just, quote-unquote, just a, a book of, of love songs and love poems between a man and a woman, and it shows to us, you know, uh, a godly relationship, it shows to us how marriage ought to be, and that we ought to be uh, pursuing uh, the one that we love, and speaking well of them, and, and endearing them, and all of these other things. If that were true, and if it were just that, then I would direct them to Ephesians chapter number 5, and say, isn't marriage itself supposed to be a picture and a representation of Christ's love for the church. 
Ephesians chapter 5 outlines for us the certain responsibilities of the husband toward the wife and the wife toward the husband. Chapter 6 goes on to talk about the children as well. But he says in verse number 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. And this is a passage of scripture that most preachers go to most often to define how a, a husband ought to love his wife as Christ loves the church and how a, a wife ought to submit and honor her husband, support her husband. And and we've got to see, you know, both of those parties, if a marriage is to really succeed, both of those parties need to be playing their part. Okay, a wife uh, that submits um, is, is, is good and she's doing her part. But if the husband is not leading and loving like he ought to, God's not going to be fully honored in that marriage like he ought to be. And there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble and there's going to be problems. But Ephesians 5.32 says concerning marriage, I speak concerning Christ in the church. So for those who just interpret this as a collection of love poems between a man and a woman, I would say, well, that would lend itself to my view, my point of view, which is that the book shows and teaches a great deal about Christ's love for the church and our mutual love that we ought to express to him. Some folks interpret the book as a warning to the Christian about the seductions of the world, and they get this by uh, viewing Solomon as a picture of the world, and the true Christ figure in their point of view is a shepherd figure that is introduced in chapter 1 and verse number 7. The scripture says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth. Uh, and they claim that that is the introduction of a third character into the narrative, and that is the true Christ figure. My defense against this argument, and let me go ahead and just say, I know men, personally know men that I trust, love, admire, respect, like I would die for these men. Uh, they, they mean so much to me, who take this particular viewpoint. Uh, this doesn't mean that I think that I'm better than them because I take a different viewpoint. I don't think that I'm better than them. I don't think that I have some curb on Bible knowledge that they don't have. I landed on a different place concerning this scripture than they did. Okay, And I very much believe that I'm right about it, but at the same time, you know, I need to be humble and need to respect the fact that other people have different opinions and things like that. I can give a defense for my point of view uh, and a defense against this argument, and I'm going to do that in just a moment, but I wanted to, pred to predicate this with just saying, look, I, I don't know everything, okay? And I'm just sharing with you what I believe the Lord has shared with me, and you can do with this what you will, okay? So, uh, the scripture says in verse 7, Thou whom my soul lovest, and according to these folks, this, this is the introduction of a shepherd figure. Let me just go ahead and read that verse. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? And their argument is, from here on, whenever you see, you know, thou whom my soul lovest, or beloved, that that is the bride speaking about this figure. The issue that I have with this is, um, I, I do not personally see that this is the introduction of a third character. Because if we go back to verse number two, Okay, this is still the bride speaking. The bride is speaking from verse 2 on down to verse number 7. And the bride says in verse number 2, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Thy love is better than wine. Would you think that the person that she's saying, thy love is better than wine, would be the same person she's saying in verse number 7, you are the one whom my soul loves. Verse number three tells us, Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name, as is an ointment poured forth. So she says, Your the very name of you is is sweet to me, it's adorning to me, it's an ointment to me. 
uh, in fact, this this particular verse is the inspiration for the song, uh, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds by um, John Newton. But she says here, because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as an ointment poured forth. Would you think that the person that she's saying your name is as an ointment poured forth? Would you think that that's the same person that she's talking about in verse 7 saying, you're the one who my soul loves? Verse number three says, at the end of it, therefore do the virgins love thee. Again, same argument. Would this be describing a different person, a fundamentally different person than, than you know who she's talking about here in verse number three? Would that be a different individual? Verse number four, she specifically names the king in verse number four. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. There's a colon there. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. Do you think that that's speaking about a different person than verse number seven? I don't think so. She says, we will remember thy love more than wine. Again, do you think it's talking about a different person? The upright love thee. And then she goes in verses five and six and she gives an explanation or description of herself. She describes the fact that I believe she's a foreigner. She describes her skin color and she says, you know, I'm like an outcast, like the, the tents of Kedar. And uh, we'll get into all of these things as we dive into the scripture and we'll explain some of these things later. But she gives an explanation in verses five and six. I'm just bridging the gap between verses two through four and verse number seven. So she is speaking all the way through and she's speaking to the same person. I fully believe she's speaking to the same person. It would be really weird for her to completely shift her affections and her speech in verse number seven to start talking to somebody else or to talk, start talking about somebody else. And she doesn't name this person as a shepherd. She names this person as the person who she loves and as the owner of the sheep. Tell me where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. The response that comes back from this is in verse number eight, where it says, this is the response from the one who is answering to thou whom my soul lovest. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. He says, if you don't know where I cause my sheep to lie, go and join yourself to my flock and rest by my shepherd's tents. He's not calling himself a shepherd. He's the owner of the sheep who has hired other people to be shepherds, but he's not the shepherd himself. Now, of course, in the gospel narrative, if you take it as such, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, but he employs under shepherds to serve and to lead people who were desiring to see him and desiring to have rest. He leads people, or he calls people as under shepherds to help those folks find rest. And so there is still a gospel picture here given in this. And again, we'll get into this in several episodes when we actually cover this verse. But verse number nine it says, I have compared thee. This is still the one who was responding to, O thou whom my soul lovest. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. This is the, the, the same person who's speaking here. And, and the interesting thing is, is I've read behind some of the people who adopt this viewpoint that, this, that verse number seven introduces the third character. They all pretty well agree that verse number nine is is talking about this is this is something Solomon is saying to to the woman and he's he's trying to flatter her up and he's trying to uh, entice her and draw her away from the true sh uh, true Christ figure in in the shepherd boy to himself and 
I just I don't I don't see that at all. Okay, if 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 you have that mentality and that viewpoint, and you can help me better understand that, please come to me, and I would I would love to better understand that. But to me, I just I don't. The person who is responding to the endearment, thou thou whom my soul lovest, she uh, he he makes a claim in verse number eight. It's him that owns the sheep but hires the shepherds. Okay. Uh, it's him that compares her to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. It's him in verse number 10 that she is adorning herself for. It says, uh, verse number 10, Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. This is talking about a marital headdress that royal and prominent weddings, you know, the woman would wear a headdress that had jewels going down the sides of their face, down their cheeks and whatnot, and adorning with necklaces and stuff. So this is how she has adorned herself for him. And then in verse number 11, it says, we will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. And this is the one who is crowning her. We will make the borders of gold. So you think about borders, a border being something that outlies around something. And that's a crown that's being set down upon her head. It's a crown of gold with studs of silver. And it's got studs of silver within the crown of gold. It's him that is crowning her. So you think about it. In the terms of the Christian... If you are going to take the, this viewpoint that at least the bride is representing the church, uh, in, in the terms of the Christian, who is it that owns the sheep but hires the shepherds? Who is it that um, uh, that we adorn ourselves for? Who is it that uh, will crown us one day with, with a crown of righteousness? I mean, it's Christ. So I take the viewpoint that this is, this is uh, clearly... Solomon representing Christ and and the bride representing the church. If you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm I'm not trying to lord myself over you at all, but I am trying to be clear. This is where I'm coming from. Okay? So, as we've covered these things, let's go on to who are the main characters? What do they represent? So, the main characters are really two, um, but there's one really, really main character. Uh, The opening verse says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It ascribes this book to Solomon. Now, there's a lot of people who claim that Solomon is not the real author of the book. I don't believe that. Um, I believe that this book was written by Solomon. And many other people believe uh, that this book was written by Solomon. I'm not alone in that. But more, more than you know, the phrase, which is Solomon's, more than I believe that that's telling us that Solomon wrote the book, I'm, I believe that it's telling us that Solomon is the subject of the book. When you say something is someone's, that is mine, it's not only denoting ownership, it's also saying that thing pertains to me. And uh, and and maybe it's about me. You think about a book. We think about uh, literature and things like that. That is my biography. Well, if it's a biography, it is not necessarily something that you wrote, but it is definitely about you. And if this is Solomon's song, then it is about Solomon. And so... Uh, that is one reason why I believe that Solomon is a picture and figure of Christ. Because who is the theme, the main character in the song of our redemption? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and purchased us with his own blood. The songs of heaven is going to revolve around the person of Jesus Christ. But more than this, there's other reasons why I believe that Solomon pictures Christ. There are some folks who who argue against that, and we'll get to some of those arguments here in just a minute, Um, but there are plenty of reasons why we would believe that Solomon represents and pictures Christ. The first of which being, his name is Solomon. 
The name Solomon comes from the Hebrew word, you've probably heard it, shalom. It means peace. Whereas David, his father, was a king of peace, or a king of war, a man of war, Solomon was a king of peace. He was a man whose reign, whose rule, was typified by peace. Christ is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9 6. The Bible tells us that when Christ was born, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, in verse number 14, that Christ, He is our peace. He is the peace of God. He's the one that reconciles us to God. He's given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Be ye reconciled unto God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe. He is the king of peace. Secondly, about the subject of other evidences, uh, he, he was a king who was endued with wisdom. Well, Christ is seen as the wisdom of God through which God the Father framed the world's. Read Proverbs chapter number 8 in that light. And when it's talking about wisdom and personifying wisdom, you know, it's it's talking about framing the worlds and being there when the foundations were laid and all of that. Well, Christ is the one who, through which God created all things. The Bible tells us that, teaches us that in Colossians it, chapter 1. It teaches us that in John chapter 1. It teaches us that in Hebrews chapter number 1, that Jesus Christ is the one who created us, it was, of course, obviously under the commandment and according to the instruction of God the Father, but it was through the Word, through Jesus Christ, that all things were created. So he is the wisdom of God through which God the Father framed the worlds. The Bible tells us also about Solomon's kingdom, that he was a king who was powerful. Okay, Nobody rebelled against him or fought against him. Obviously, he was a, pr a king of peace who had a peaceful reign. Um and uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter, or rather in Matthew chapter 28, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It also teaches us that Solomon was a man who was endued with riches. He, he accrued a great deal of wealth to himself. And uh, the Bible tells us that Christ has been appointed heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 2. Now, now how much is everything? I mean, that's all of it, right? All means all. Uh, he was appointed the heir of all things, and uh, he will receive that one day, and the earth will be his footstool. Uh, he's also a king who received, talking about Solomon, received honor from even foreign nations. The queen of Sheba came to pay honor to Solomon, and one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11. I, I believe with all my heart that Solomon is a picture, a representative of Christ. Now, the argument that people come up with on this is saying, how is it that a man who had so many wives and so many concubines, how is it could he, could he know anything about true love? How is it could he be the author? How is it could he be the one who typifies Christ? Well, let me remind you of something right quick. None of us. None of us fully picture Christ. And even though in a certain aspect of the of the word, you know, Moses typified Christ in in his his early life and uh, in the, you know, being delivered from certain death, the decree of Pharaoh there that, you know, every male child under the age of 2 or every male child not under the age of 2, but every male child 
once it came out of the womb, it was basically to be killed, and and Moses was delivered and spared. And then we contrast that with uh, with uh, the great Herod's decree that every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem should be be killed, and how Christ was spared from that. Uh, forty days or forty years of preparation in in the the land of Midian um, serves as a representative representative and picture of the forty days in the wilderness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses pictured Christ. But, but Moses also, in a sense, pictures the law, how that he brought the children of Israel to a certain point. He brought them to Jordan, but he couldn't take them through. And, and so, in a certain sense, he pictures Christ. In a certain sense, he doesn't picture Christ. He, he sinned against God and wasn't able himself to go into the promised land. That obviously is not a picture of Christ and his sin, because in Christ there is no guile, there's no deceit, there's no sin. So he obviously can't picture Christ, but that doesn't rob the other elements of Moses' life where he does serve as a Christ figure. Uh, all throughout the scripture, David serves as a, a picture and, and type of Christ in certain things. And so, uh, But he was a man who had faults and issues and failures and all of those different things. So just saying, how in the world can, Mo, uh, can Solomon picture and represent Christ because he was a man who had sin in his life? Well, guess what? All of us have sin in our lives. And so don't don't be so hard on Solomon as to say, well, God can't use him. God can't uh, you know speak uh, a word of Christ through him because of the sin that was in Solomon's life. They also say, you know, well, well, how can this man really know anything about true love if he had so many wives and so many concubines? This is this is really a major contention that people have with this interpretation. This book of the Bible was written early in Solomon's in his rule in his reign. The scripture says in Song of Solomon 6 and verse number 8, There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. Threescore queens. Now, a score is 20. Okay. Threescore queens, so three times 20, that's 60. 60 wives and fourscore concubines. That's 80. All right. I think it was, what, 300 wives and 700 concubines by the end of his reign that he had? I mean, I don't know I don't know what he, what he had in his mind when he married... 300 women, but yeah, there was obviously a problem, and that is the reason for his downfall, for his departure from, from the will of God in his life was because of all of these strange women. But what the verse says here in, in, in Song of Solomon 6, 8, okay, so Solomon was still young, okay, this is earlier on in his in his rule, three score queens and, and four score concubines and virgins without number, but he says in verse number 9, my dove which is a, a, a reference most of the time, if not all the time, in the Song of Solomon, when it, you see my dove, it's talking about the bride. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. He says, I've got 60 wives. I've got 80 concubines. I've got countless virgins who are willing to devote themselves to me. All right, let's just be frank about what this is talking about. He says, but there's only one that excels them all. Well, that shows to us that he obviously had a favorite. Do we have any idea or any indication who this favorite might be? Do we have any idea or indication as to the identity of the bride? Well, I think we do. Let me just go ahead and state real quick that the bride, no matter who the actual person was, the bride typifies the believer. It typifies the church in general, 
but also the Christian in particular. Let me read something to you from chapter number one and just share with you a distinction here. And the Bible tells us in verse number four, draw me. All right, so that's that's personal. Draw me individually. And then it says, we, plural, we will run after thee. She says, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. So there's a plurality to this, but there's still a singularity to it as well. Draw me, but we will run after thee. When interpreting this book, when reading the pages of Scripture, we understand that there are promises given to the church in general. But it is essential for us to understand that the promises that are given to us in general as a church are also extended to us in particular as individuals. That when Jesus Christ says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, he is saying, You individually, as a person, have this promise. When he says, Cast all your care upon him, because he care for he careth for you, when you're reading in the King James Bible all the these and thous, when you see something that starts with the T, thee, thou, thy, thine, that's singular, okay? There's one person being mentioned. The Hebrew and the Greek both make a distinction between the singular and plural. So thee, thou, thine, all of that, that's singular. When there's ye, you, your, that's plural. So cast all your care upon him. Speaking in general, cast all your care upon him. That promise is still specific to you and, and specific as well. It is given to you. You individually need to cast your care upon him because he cares for you individually as well. And so there's that distinction that's made there. Okay, so the bride typifies the church in general and also the Christian. But the bride, I believe we can, with some degree of confidence, nail down an identity in Scripture for her. And I think I think it would be honorable to the Lord for us to try to do this. Now, reverently, obviously, and not in, in a haughty sense, uh, but humbly to approach this and say, Lord, help us, teach us, grow us. Don't let us get, you know, our pride to get out of out of control or hand or anything like this. But he's given us the scriptures to study and to try to, to find some things. So he says there in Song of Solomon 6, he says, you know, I've got all these wives, all these concubines, but there's one that all these queens, they praise. There's one wife that the other, there's one wife that the other wives praise. And so the scripture tells us about Solomon's reign uh, in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Okay, those are the main places that we find Solomon's reign. Okay, and there's one person in particular that Solomon marries early in his rule. In fact, this is the first person that is named as being a person that Solomon took as wife. Not necessarily saying that this is the per the first person that Solomon married, but this is the first person that is specifically mentioned in the narrative of Scripture that Solomon marries. And it happens to be the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, the scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter number 3, uh, and uh, even in verse number 1 is where the, the text is that talks about this, that he married Pharaoh's, queen, Pharaoh's daughter and uh, made an affinity with Pharaoh the king of Egypt, made an affinity, made an alliance, okay? So this is, this is a peace deal. He's brokering peace between Egypt and uh, Israel. Not really brokering peace because they already really had peace. David was a man who was well respected, but this cemented that peace. Okay, so this was this was a political thing. All right, that those things happened, and they still happen today in various parts of the world. So um, Solomon takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. 
The Bible goes on to tell us in that same verse, it says that he brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. We'll get into this in greater detail in just a moment, but when he built the temple and when all of those things were done, he did not let any of his wives live with him in Jerusalem. Okay, They all had, they all had to go away from Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that he brought this woman in to Jerusalem to live with him until he built these houses. So if we fast forward a little bit, um, we will find that he gave her a little bit of special treatment. Before we go into that, though, let me tell you something. Um, just kind of explore a thought. This is not necessarily me saying this is what the Bible teaches, this is what the Bible says, and you need to go regurgitate this and, 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 and teach this to other people. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is an observation that I had. It was interesting, okay? Worthy of note. And so I'm sharing it with you. Take it with a grain of salt. Don't take it as the voice of Scripture, okay? But the the Scripture tells us that he made an affinity with the, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, okay? He married her to submit peace between Israel and Egypt. So some symbolism might be that Israel represents the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It still does to this day. Israel is not just the, the, the name of Israel, but the actual location of the land of Israel. There's something special about that land, okay? That's why everybody wants it. That's why everybody's fighting over it, okay? But Israel represents the kingdom of heaven. Egypt in Scripture always, always represents a picture of the world, of, of, of man's strength and sin, of bondage, those kinds of things. So, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter out of Egypt in order to bring peace between these two kingdoms. In the same way, God seeks to redeem a bride to himself out of the world. So Pharaoh's daughter comes out of Egypt. We have to come out of the world so that he might redeem all things to himself and establish, not necessarily establish, but to um, adorn his kingdom. Let's say that. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1, verse number 20, that Jesus Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in heaven or in things in earth. So the scripture here is teaching that we are not the only things that God redeemed to himself through the cross. That he is, as we've said in Hebrews 1, he's the heir of all things. But he says in Colossians 1:20 that he has sought to reconcile all all things unto himself. Again, what does all mean? All means all. He sought to redeem the earth itself to himself. So the scripture tells us in Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creature is waiting for you know these, these final things to be revealed, revealed. Manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was not was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. And in short, that means the creation didn't have any choice in the matter about whether or not it got cursed. When we sinned, we subjected creation to the curse. There were thorns and thistles and briars and, and violence and chaos and all those things entered into the world. Okay, so it says, um, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself... The creature itself, not talking about us as individuals, but the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole crea creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. 
And so through this marriage of Christ and his church, he not only redeems a church to himself, but he actually redeems the sin-cursed world to himself again. Now, obviously, he's going to have to judge the the ungodly. He's going to have to condemn those who have rejected him. And he's going to have to, to uh, judge those who will not hear his word. He's, he's got to do all of that, okay? So, obviously, I'm not teaching universalism and that all things created are going to be redeemed unto God. There are those, the devil and his angels, and those people who have not paid attention to the word of God and have not given honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, those people will be condemned forever and ever and ever, okay? There's absolutely no mincing of my words here, okay, on that. But the scripture does teach us that he's going to remake the heavens and the earth and that creation itself will be remade. And he does this because of what he has done in the work of the cross, reconciling all things to himself. Okay, so going on from here... Uh, some other reasons why I think that Pharaoh's daughter might be a good substitute or a good um, candidate for the bride here in Song of Solomon. The Bible tells us that Solomon gave Pharaoh's daughter a little bit of special treatment. First Kings chapter seven and verse number eight tells us. Now remember, First Kings three tells us that she lived with him until he made an end to building his house and the temple. So First Kings chapter number seven, verse number. Eight. The scripture says, talking about Solomon, then he made a porch. And we've heard of Solomon's porch, right? S made a porch for the throne where he might judge. And even the porch of judgment. And it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. It says in his house, and his house where he, where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of the like work. Verse 8, Solomon made also an house. For Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto his porch. We'll get into the description of the layout of that house or the materials used in, in, in that house in just a moment. But Solomon built her her own house that was attached to his palace. Okay? The Bible tells us in Song of Solomon 1, at the very end of it, I don't have the reference written down right in front of me at the moment, but verse number 17, I believe it is, she describes her house as being our house, okay? Uh, this goes on in verse number 9, talking about the, the adorning of these, or the, the makeup of these houses. All these were of costly stones, according to the measure of huge stones, sawed with saws, within, without, even from the foundation under the coping, and so on the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, even great stones, stones of ten cubits, stones of eight cubits. And above, so above all of these stones, we might say the beams that go above the house, right? These were of costly stones. Uh, these were uh, three rows of huge stones and of a row of cedared beams, both for the inner court of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. A row of cedar beams. That's interesting because the Bible tells us in Song of Solomon 1 verse 17, our house has cedar beams. She says our house, the beams of our house are cedar. Christ says, and again, this is one of those things, it's an observation, okay? You can take it or leave it. Call me crazy, whatever. But Christ says concerning the place that is prepared for us, in my father's house are many mansions. Now this is the subject of a lot of debate from a lot of people. 
I am a King James guy. I, I, I use it exclusively. There's a reason for that. I'll explain that in a different podcast and a, diff- a different podcast and a different podcast episode on a different day, okay? But I'm a King James Bible guy, okay? And uh, so a lot of modern translations render that word in my father's house are many rooms, not mansions, rooms. And a lot of people have defended and contended against that. So let me just give you an idea of what Solomon's palace and this little house that he built for Pharaoh's daughter was like. Pharaoh's daughter lived in her own house. It was her own separate entity, but it was directly attached to and connected with Solomon's palace. Okay, I understand the argument that in my father's house might represent like a house meaning a family or a clan or something like that, but in my father's house are many mansions. There are many mansions, many houses, that are attached, palaces that are attached to his house. Just a thought, okay? Take it or leave it, whatever you want to do. But the place that God has has prepared for us is directly connected with the Father's house. We know that, okay? He wants us to be where he is. So, this lends itself to the narrative that Pharaoh's daughter might be the bride in Song of Solomon. When the temple was completed, Solomon moved all of his wives out of Jerusalem. He said in 2 Chronicles 8, verse number 11, he says, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 3 that he moved Pharaoh's daughter in with him until he made an end of building his own house in the temple. So 2 Chronicles 8 follows... Obviously, chapter 7. We remember chapter 7, okay? Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people which are called by my name, you know, that is a promise that is given to Solomon after he prays the prayer in chapter 6 when they dedicate the temple. So the temple is done. It's finished. It's through. The temple is done. This is the time where the Bible tells us that Pharaoh's daughter lived with Solomon in the city of David until this point. This is that point. First Kings chapter number 9 follows after the same narrative. The temple has been built. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 9.24, But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house, which Solomon had built for her. Second Chronicles 8.11, the entirety of that verse says, Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David unto the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. He built her a second house, her own palace. How about that? She got some special treatment. If there's anyone, returning back our thought and our mind to to Song of Solomon 6, where it says, you know, the queens praise thee. If there's any one of his wives that was worthy of the praise of the other wives, it was Pharaoh's daughter, okay? This house had to be different from the house referenced to in 1 Kings 7 because the scripture tells us about, you know, her. Uh, he brought her into the house of the city, or into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house. Okay, so a distinction here might be made where instead of Christ casting us out because, you know, 
his place is holy and we're unholy. He died to redeem us, to make us holy, okay? So instead of us being cast away from the holy place of God, we're beckoned to draw nigh unto God, James 4, 8, and to come boldly before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, 16, because the blood of Jesus Christ has made us holy and cleansed us from all of our sins. So, more evidence to Pharaoh's daughter being the bride mentioned in Song of Solomon might be found in chapter number one. She says in verses one through or verses five through six, she tell, tells the Solomon, she says, I am black. She is referring to her skin color. She was not an Israelite, okay? She says, I am black. She was from a region where the sun was very harsh, and those people had the genetics and, and, and the skin color that adopted that culture, or not culture, but that that climate, that's the word I'm looking for. Okay, so she says, I am black. Verse number five, she, she uses the expression, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, and she uses that expression all throughout the book, okay? O ye daughters of Jerusalem. This indicates that she herself was not a daughter of Jerusalem. She is compared to uh, a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots in verse number nine. This would obviously have been received as a high compliment if it was spoken to Pharaoh's daughter. And if it was one of his other wives, it might be a, a pretty big diss there, all right? You're, you're like a, a, a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. And it's like, oh yeah, big boy, who are you really thinking about? Who are you really buttering up here? Anyway, um, she describes her house as being our house, which would perfectly fit the evidence already seen concerning the houses that Solomon built specifically for Pharaoh's daughter. This is also a picture that an outsider has been brought into the kingdom of Israel, and it gives a beautiful picture of Christ grafting into the Gentiles to the promises that were made to Abraham if we will by faith trust in him. So, wrapping up, okay? We've already exhausted a lot of time here and I've gone through a lot of information and whatnot. Maybe I'm not as crazy as I, I seemed at the very beginning of this episode where I said, we're going to go through Song of Solomon. Maybe you still think I am crazy, but if you're still listening to this, you're at least interested, okay? So, let me tell you three things as we close, okay? Regardless of how we choose to interpret this book, it cannot be denied that this book has been preserved for us in the pages of Scripture, and so we would be robbing ourselves, this is the second thing, we would be robbing ourselves of a blessing of God if we refused to study. Unless God made a mistake, I mean, unless he lied to us, and this particular scripture is not profitable for doctrine, it's not profitable for reproof, it's not profitable for correction, it's not profitable for instruction in righteousness. But I don't believe God can make a mistake. So I'm going to study the Song of Solomon and believe that there is something that can teach me, there's something that can show, be shown to me, there's something that can correct me, and there's something that can instruct me in this book. So we would be robbing ourselves if we simply refused to study this book. But thirdly, and this is really important, may we approach this book with a humble heart, with eyes open, faith towards God, and ears attuned to the word of God, asking God, Lord, show me. Let me read this one verse to you before we close on that line. This is one of the verses that struck out, uh, struck me when I initially read this book a few years ago with open eyes. Uh, it says, and this is speaking from the perspective of the bride, this is the second to last verse of the book. It says, Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Cause me to hear it. She says, Other people are hearing your voice. I want to hear it too. If the Lord has something to teach us through Song of Solomon, will you echo that prayer and say, Lord, thy companions hear your voice. Cause me to hear it. Until next time, may God bless you. This has been the Song of Songs. <laughs>